For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi, and welcome to The Rock Podcast. Some Hebrew Christians in the first century church were having a tough time with things and were entertaining the idea of returning to the comfort and familiarity of Judaism. Here in Hebrews chapter 3, the writer warns these Jews about falling short by using an example from their own history. Now let's join Pastor Ross with a message entitled, Wandering in the Wilderness. Well, there was a congregation in a lot of trouble there in the first century. The church was made up, as you will recall, of Hebrews, and thus the letter's title, Hebrews. Uh, They were Jews who had heard the gospel and believed and became born-again Christians, even though they were Hebrew. Now, by the time Acts chapter 4 comes along, there's 5,000 of them. It was the Jewish thing to do. I mean, they had 300 prophecies about Jesus from their own scriptures. And so it was easy uh, for the Jews initially to come to Christ. But if they had thought that living as a Jew was tough in the Roman days and under the the Caesars and Nero, if they thought being a Jew was hard, uh, they had seen nothing yet. Because when they added Jesus to the mix, There's a whole new level of struggles and problems as any Christian can relate to. Most troubling of all was in their Jewish families, the Jewish communities, and you didn't do anything as a Jew without being connected to the community. So life was pretty much over when they would become traitors and sell out Moses and the law for this Jesus and the grace thing. And so, uh, but Jesus warned us, you know, you don't have to be uh, a Jew coming to Christ to experience alienation in your family. Hello. I mean, uh, how many people realize that their family and friends didn't share the same enthusiasm as you did when you found the light and came to talk about it to others? And so Jesus warned us, Matthew chapter 10, he said, listen, don't think of my coming as a peaceful thing necessarily, because because of me, families will be divided, not peace, but with a sword. There'll be two of you at one side of the table, three of you on the other. There'll be one versus six. There'll be six versus four. That's the way it's going to be. So get ready for that. And, you know, they had the scriptures. They were ready. But on another level, they were also in trouble with the Roman world because there was a world there quite content with worshiping Caesar as God and bowing down before immoral statues of Zeus and Aphrodite and living unchallenged in their uh, sexual immorality and the darkness and ignorance of sin. And they quickly grew tired of hearing from Christians about this different king, this king that tolerated no rival thrones, (laughs) this God with absolute truth that demanded surrender and the R word, repentance. And so um, that kind of uh, made things really tough. And so they were losing their jobs. They were losing their freedoms. And some of them were losing 
their lives. But what did Jesus tell us? Jesus said, go ahead and try to save your life, but by doing so, you'll lose life. For whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. That's the true finding yourself is losing yourself for the kingdom of God and seeking uh, him and his kingdom first. And all the rest of it falls into place. So the Hebrews facing all of this trouble as born-again Christians were vacillating and riding the fence saying, hey, maybe, you know, maybe Moses and Judaism wasn't that bad. <laughs> Did we have these kind of struggles? They weren't killing us. We weren't losing our jobs, you know. I mean, we had a certain amount of protection. So they were thinking about going back to Judaism. That was their case. But you know what, friends? <laughs> That's the struggle for every Christian, every believer who comes to the, to the Lord. You can close those doors. That would be awesome. Everybody struggles with it when there is those, when you have any kind of challenge or hardship. You want to stop the behavior that's causing the hardship or inconvenience, right? But you can't do that because of Christ. If it's Christ in your Christian faith that's causing you the pain and suffering, Jesus said you'll have to endure that because he's the Lord. It's connected to salvation. So you don't have the option of saying, hey, this hurts. This is causing me trouble. I better stop doing it. Uh, But the Hebrew Christians were thinking about it. Hey, we'll just go back to our comfortable life. And Moses is okay. It's it's half the Bible. It'll be okay. And no doubt, one of their pastors, I call him pastor. They don't know who exactly wrote it because Paul left it unsigned. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, A Hebrew himself, he writes this passionate 13-chapter letter slash sermon to encourage these Hebrew Christians, don't even think about turning your back on Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. You know, I mean, you could uh, subtitle Hebrews as, are you crazy? Uh, Have you lost your minds? Walk away with Jesus? Come on, come on. Especially to go back to Judaism of all places where everything in Judaism is pointing to what you already have obtained in Jesus Christ. Christ. I mean, where do you go from the God-man, God coming through a virgin womb, becoming one of us, so that he could pay our penalty, purify our sins by dying in our place, and then putting a spirit inside of us to give us eternal life and to reconnect us to God Almighty? Where do you go from that? The only way to go anywhere from the name that is above every name, as the Bible says, of Jesus' name, the only place you go from that name is down. Don't do that. There's no reason for that. And in fact, now here in chapter 3, chapter 1, he said, listen, let's talk about it. Jesus is God. If you want to mess around with Jesus, just know you're messing around with God. Spurgeon called him very God of very God. Hebrews chapter 1 explains the Son of God is equal to God on every level. Chapter 2 says, yes, he was fully God and he's fully man because he had a mission. God had to become one of us to offer the perfect sacrifice to take away our sins. So chapter 2 is, yeah, he's fully God, but he's fully man And he didn't become inferior in any way by doing so. He was on a mission 
but now he's exalted to the place he always was. Chapter three says, okay, if you're gonna mess around with that combination, you're gonna miss out on the benefit of entering what is called his rest, of, of embracing salvation and life. You're gonna turn away from your only hope of making it in this life. Now, uh, before we dive in, the true test, this is Hebrews in a nutshell, the true test of a genuine Christian experience is that you preserve to the end. That's the proof. Nobody knows anything about anybody in this room. The only way you know who really is is that they go all the way to the end. Catch this part. Christians don't preserve to the end to try to be saved. They preserve to the end because they are saved. Now, in the struggles that all Christians have with their faith during the good times and the bad times, they have tools and admonitions and encouragements in the Bible of how Christians who preserve to the end, how, how they preserve to the end, they do various things. And there are going to be four various things mentioned that Christians who make it to the end inevitably end up doing. And the first one is rather easy. It's right there in verse one. Why don't we show that and we'll get going. So therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, these are born again believers. They're proclaiming to be. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and the high priest whom we confess. So we're gonna pause right there because point number one, the things that preserve Christians to the end, save people persevere because they fix their eyes on Jesus. Now, why is it important to fix your eyes on Jesus? Well, he tells you right there. He's the great apostle. Apostle means he's the one sent. He's God's representative, God himself, God the Son, sent from heaven to save us. He's the one who started your faith, and he's the perfecter of your faith. So you would look to him when you're having troubles, when you have doubts and fears and you need strength and grace and you don't know what to do, fix your attention on the one who was sent from heaven to save you. That's where you go. You don't go backwards. You don't run around here. You don't have a whole host of things that you can go and do to strengthen your faith. You go fix your attention on he who started the good work in you because he is faithful to complete that work until that day in caps. Just the second coming. He's the one sent to save us. And then the second word, high priest. You know, fix your attention on Jesus because he's the way you connect with God. The priest was the middleman. He was like putting your hand and the hand of God together. So where else are you going to go? You're going to look to somebody else. He's the door to eternal life. He's the one God sent to save you. He's the one you need to fix your gaze upon. Now, what's up with the Hebrews? They weren't doing that. You know who they were looking to? Moishi. Moishi is Hebrew for Moses. They were looking back to Judaism and back to Jewish ways, and most importantly, back to Moses, who represents the Old Testament and Judaism uh, 
itself. And so he says, let me tell you why you need to fix your attention on Jesus and not on Moses because Jesus is better. The key word to the whole book, chapter, chapters 1 through 13, is the word better. It is used 12 times. Not in the sense that Moses is bad and Jesus is better. Moses was good. He's a faithful servant, as we're going to read. But Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. So it's not about comparing bad and good. It's about comparing good to best, to supreme. And the only way that good becomes bad is when you choose good over better. Then the good is not so good after all because you needed the better and the best. And so uh, he has a lot of good things to say. Now, as we go, now he's going to compare Moses and Jesus. He's going to say, listen, it's a no-brainer, folks. Moses is good, but Jesus is the son of God. And as he does that, you'll need to take out your invisible yarmulke, which is one of those Jewish skull caps, as I've mentioned before, because you're going to dive into Jewish things and Jewish histories and, and, and things that people removed 2,000 years from Judaism, I have a hard time with them. Don't panic. We're going to get through it, and we're going to look at it, and you have a tour guide right here. I'm going to help you. <laughs> All right? Complete with a New York, New York accent, if I could spit that out, and we'll see what we can do. Okay, so here's the deal. He's going to compare Moses with Jesus and uh, Christianity with Judaism. Here we go, verses two through six. He was faithful, Jesus, now, to the one, the Father, who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Nothing wrong with Moses, but Moses can't do what Jesus can do for you. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of the house has greater honor than the house itself. So in other words, you don't go to the house and say to the house, oh, house, you are big and marvelous. And who did your bathrooms? I mean, listen, your bathrooms are wonderful. No, you go to the contractor with those kinds of remarks. And he's going to say, God, Jesus, is the contractor of Judaism. You see, he's greater. Okay, let's go on. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future about Christ. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So uh, note takers number one, saved people persevere to the end as they fix their eyes on Jesus. And number two, saved people make it to the finish line because they hold on to their courage and hope. Now, it's going to be helpful for these Hebrews to understand the relationship of the Old Testament to the New. Jeremiah already told them in chapter 31, listen, says the Lord, I'm going to do away with the Old Testament and it's going to give way to something called the New Testament. The word covenant means testament. He already gave them hands up. It's not going to be about the law. It's going to be about mercy and grace and a new heart and a change of life from the inside, not outside conformity. They already knew it was coming. So he wants to compare the Judaism with Christianity and show them this, that 
Moses is a faithful servant and prophet, but there's the faithful son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who fulfills everything of the Old Testament. Now, let's make that go away and blank screen while I just let you know. The gospel starts with Moses, the servant. The gospel that we preach starts with Moses. It starts with the Exodus. Exodus is a picture of the people of God who were once in darkness, once oppressed, once enslaved to the bondage of their sins and delivered not by their own ingenuity or power or strength, but by the miraculous hand of God who picked them out of sure death and raised them up and brought them into his promised life, a place of life. So it starts with Moses the servant. Moses is a servant who came as a revel, bringing revelation of the law and the tabernacle and Judaism and how this is prepping itself for Christianity. Now listen, Christianity is everywhere in the Exodus. Parting of the Red Sea. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, that, my friend, is a picture of Christian baptism. The bread that's appearing from heaven That, my friend, is a picture of Jesus who said, I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven to give my life for the life of the world. Strike the rock. Strike the rock. And then it's injured and it bleeds what? It bleeds water. There it is. I am the living water, Jesus said. So Moses is a servant in the house of Judaism to serve a revelation of what's to come while Jesus is the one who comes and fulfills it all. And so this is what is happening here. Now, even more clear, the gospel is seen in what, in Exodus 25, God gives Moses a revelation of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is an old King James word for tent. And he said, here's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's how I save people. And Moses is going to be a faithful servant, not like his brother Aaron, who made a a, a couple of golden calves for everybody. He's faithful. And he brings down the Ten Commandments, but he sets this up because God showed it to him as a pattern and said, let me reveal the gospel to you. Number one, the cross. Somebody's got to die. The blood goes there. The blood goes there. The sins are confessed onto the animal. Bam, the animal's destroyed killed, and that blood, that blood goes into here to the holy place where this is the bigger picture, the altar of incense. The altar of incense represents intercession prayers that will be of Jesus who will save his people. Why? The coals have to be lit by the coals that had blood on them. You take a blood-soaked coal and you bring it over and you light it up there. If you don't use the blood-soaked coals and light that fire, you die. And two of them were struck dead. Those is Aaron's sons. Aaron's sons are like, hey, why they? It's a long way to go get the, the blood-soaked uh, coals over here. So, hey, you got a big lighter? You know, hey, so they pull out a match and they light the fire. And then those are prayers that don't have blood on them. Boom, dead, because why? 
There's no intercession. There's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. This is all the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what do you got? On the night Jesus is going to the cross, what does he take? He takes a bowl, a basin of water. Hello, I am the living water. He cleanses everybody's feet. He's cleansing everybody before he goes to the cross. Jesus said, the lampstand, he said, I am the light of the world. John 8, 12, anybody who follow me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. There he is right there. This was the big ticket item called the ark. It represented the throne of God. But there was a problem. Underneath the throne, which established the throne, what was inside the box, the Ten Commandments, which we break on a daily basis. Thus, throne God curtain. There's a problem. You break the commandments, but let me show you the gospel. If you take somebody and pay the penalty, which is death, and you take that blood and come in here and put it, the high priest only, put it on the top of the ark, which was called the mercy seat. If you put the blood there, it atones for everybody breaking the Ten Commandments, God's moral laws beneath, and then you can be met. So when Jesus dies on the cross, he says, it says he breathed his last breath and the top of the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, boom, because the cross fulfills everything here. The bread, showbread is a King James word for bread of presence. And and it represents communion, that God will have a meal with us now that our sins are washed away. Well, then 400 years later, they built, next slide, they built the temple, Solomon. So this is the tabernacle, what you just saw, only with brick and stones and gold, all right? Inside that looks just like the tent, all right? He says, listen, Hebrews, Moses was faithful. We love Moses. I'm not dissing your Moses. I'm just telling you he's a servant. And and if you can't tell the difference between a servant, let's say, in Buckingham Palace, you can't tell the difference between the guy who's trimming the hedges and then when Prince walks in as a boy, even, there's a difference between the son and the help in the palace, And you guys are going to go back to the help when you've got the heir who's in your heart. And here's the whole picture. He said, the cross, Jesus the Son, is greater because he takes all of this, is fulfilled in one cross. God paying for the sins of the world, reconciling everybody to himself through the death of his son so that the Holy Spirit can come into the real temple. And he says in your text, we are the house. We're the house. It was never about the temple or Judaism or or a building or a structure. It was about he was wanting to get into us to give us life, to give us a new nature, to change our hearts, to make us like him, and to give us eternal life. That life that comes in, this is the church. This is the building. And each member, a part of it. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. 
Don't you realize Christ is in you? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Don't you realize that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? John chapter 14, verse 7. I will send you another helper, and he shall be with you, and he shall be in you. That was a whole plan. And Moses did a wonderful job as a servant. But Jesus came into the house that he built, by the way, because the structure of Judaism belongs to God, who is Christ, <laughs> comes into it, comes into the human race, fulfills all of Judaism in the Old Testament, then offers these people the covenant of grace. That hand, let me tell you about that hand. That hand used to steal from his employer. You want to know what this hand did? It's just to shoot up with heroin. This hand belonged to an adulteress over there. But what happened to them? They didn't slip a lamb into some temple and, and they believed in the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and the Holy Spirit of the living God came in and made their home. And now they're changed. And these hands that once stole, they don't steal anymore. They're tithing and giving and helping and serving and loving and encouraging. That was the plan. So he says, okay, Hebrews, let me get this straight. You're going to go from this to that? Have you lost your minds? And you don't need to be Hebrew just for me to ask you that crazy question. You're going to go from this to whatever it is that's saying, hey, come on, we're here. You tell me what can line up on any planet with the offer of eternal life for nothing, for free, for simply trusting. That's what he's saying. He's saying, nice servant, better, the son. Stick with the son, Hebrews. Stick with the son, amen? Amen. All right, let's go on. So it was fix your thoughts on Jesus, Hold on to your courage and hope. And now, 7 through 19. So as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, Hebrews, do not harden your hearts as you guys always seem to do, as you did in the rebellion. Oh, by the way, five verses here, Psalm 95, all right? He's going to the book, their book, our book. Today, if you hear his voice, Psalm 95, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing me in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me for 40 long years, saw what I did. This is why I was angry with that generation and I said their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Now, the pastor speaking, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Wow. So fix your thoughts on Jesus, because that's what Christians who make it do. Uh, hold, your, hold on to your courage and hope, because that's what Christians do, persevere. And now, number three, people who are saved make it to the end because they don't harden their hearts. They don't harden their hearts. Now, 20 times the 
the Jews are called in the Old Testament stiff-necked. They have a hard heart. They're obstinate. Now, stiff-necked really comes from a Hebrew that means heart of neck. It means difficult to lead, obstinate, headstrong. And um, in fact, in Exodus 32 and verse 9, the Lord says, I've seen these people and they are indeed a stiff-necked people. Now, Stephen in the New Testament is going to get into an argument with a bunch of Jews in a synagogue. Stephen is a Jew, but he is born again. And he's got an opportunity to preach to a bunch of Jewish guys in a synagogue. So he lets them have it. Acts chapter 7, it's a long sermon. But at the end of the sermon, he says, oh, he could tell he's not being well received. I mean, they're getting ready to kill him. <laughs> and he says, you, you, stiff-necked people, using the word in the Greek for sclerosis. Sclerosis of the heart, it'll kill you. Sclerosis of the soul, you do worse things. You stiff-necked and obstinate people, you're always resisting just like your ancestors. That's Stephen. And so here's what he's saying. The Hebrew pastor is writing to his Hebrew Christian friends. He said, can we talk? Can we talk? Can we be honest? You guys, we have a problem. Let's admit it. We are biologically predisposed to resist. We Jews put the S in stubborn. Uh, what is it about us? That's what he's saying. Now, I myself am not headstrong. Just... <laughs> I am so easy and mellow, and I think so, but other people have other opinions. Listen, nationalities have a reputation, right? Right or wrong, just play along with this, okay? So, I, I, I mean, the Jews, by their own testimony, you know, we're a little bit on the stubborn side with him. Uh, Italians, how are Italians known for? Italians, <laughs> the, the word is passionate. Always have to talk, oh, with the hands and everything, like, like, like the Italian just demonstrated right there. I said, now the Italians, and the Italian in the crowd cannot wait, has to get passionate about it. Oh, now wait a second, uh, let's all break and have some food, uh, you know, all right. Now, they like to talk, and there's a lot of pepper, a lot of stuff. Like Japanese, lived there for years. Oh, come on. I don't care if this is a stereotype or not. I'm just telling you, it's true. They are polite. Oh, my. Everywhere you go, giving you space and bowing. And Do you want that gift wrapped? I was at 7-Eleven, and they wanted to gift wrap something. <laughs> oh, just so sweet, nice. The French... They're the best in the kitchen. Why? Because they put butter in everything. <laughs> I could have told you that. British people are known for their stiff upper lip. That means, you know, when you're about to cry, or well, girls, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> the, the Italian over there. The lip starts to quiver, but British people are supposedly known for their stiff upper lip. They're not easily upset, and that's what that means. Now, the Jews, the Jews, it's not about their lip. It's about their neck. It's about him going, uh, go to the right, and them going, I can't go to the right. <laughs> it's not, I can't go to the right. It's, I won't go to the right. Oh, we've got some Jews out there. 
So here, the New Testament congregation of Jewish people are flirting with the idea of going back. So <laughs> pastor is saying, hey, can I bring up Psalm 95 and can we have an honest talk about our genetic national predisposition to blow it with God? All right, and so let's talk about the incident that Psalm 95 talks about, or should I say incidents? Because the Lord says, there's one really highlighted and we'll talk about it. But he does say, for 40 years, they did it. And let me give you a few examples of what they did to him. Mind you, these are people who saw the 10 plagues. They saw the 10 plagues. They saw the pillar of fire at night that kept them warm and the cloud of God's glory that shaded them from the desert sun. They ate the manna. They saw the rock flowing out of a rock. Did I say, what did I say? Something didn't sound right. I think I used too many words, like rock. Water came out. They saw all of this, but still, they're testing him, right? So here's some of the things they say, mind you, with all of that light in there. Uh, one day, they just, <laughs> they're eating manna every day, bread from heaven. And so one day they say, you know what? We've lost our appetite. We're sick of this bread. We want something else. You know what, God? We remember Egypt and the slave pits. You know what? We had garlic. We had onions. We had spices. A little flavor. Okay? Hello? All we get every day is manna, manna, manna. Ooh, step back. <laughs> and the Lord told Moses, step back. Step back. Secondly, they got thirsty. It took them more than 10 minutes to find the watering hole. And so after the 10 minutes were up, we're all going to die. Where's God when you need him? We're dying of thirst here. Look at my donkey. Look, he's leaning over. He's going to die. He hasn't had a drink in 10 minutes. There's no God. You know what? Step back. Step back. Number three, Moses took a little too long once on a mountain. He was getting the Ten Commandments. Sorry, it kept him a little bit of time. And so they start saying, where is this Moses? And they use a pejorative word, fellow. It means, who is this guy? Do we even know? Do you know anybody named Moses? Moshe, Moshe, who, whatever. You know, let's get rid of him. He's gone. Let's build ourselves the true God who delivered us, uh, the gods we're used to, golden calves. And let's have a party and party like Jewish rock stars. Sorry. I thought that was funny in my head. <laughs> I'll definitely not use that again. Yeah. But here's the big ticket item. After 10 of those instances, the Lord said, that was it. 600,000 of you will not enter the promised land, period. And I'm not letting anybody or your wives and your kids in until every last one of your body dies in the desert. Here was the last straw. They're right ready to go in to the land. One of them says, hey, why don't we send out 12 guys, spy out the land, see how it is over there. Uh, that's a good idea. One guy from every tribe. So the 12 guys went and they saw beautiful land filled with flowing with milk and honey. Milk and honey means everything you possibly need 
milk, everything you need, all your provision, honey, to make life sweet. That's what that meant. So, yo, oh man, what a gracious place. What a good place. And they brought back some souvenirs. They brought back like grapes on steroids, all right? (laughs) Because the grapes had to be carried. One cluster of grapes on a pole. All right, so they're carrying the one cluster of grapes, figs, and pomegranates. And they come back and they hold the evening service. They say, hey, listen, somehow 10 of the spies got the microphone. And 10 of them said, check these grapes out, check the figs out. Hey, everything was as good as God said it was going to be. Whoa, what a place. And look at the food. Too bad none of you are going to eat it because you're going to squash us like the bugs we are. They're big. They're giant. Goliath's brothers live there. We're like grasshoppers. Who's the God's not going to come through for us here? We don't believe in you. We had it better without you. We are not cooperating. You are not able. We are not going forward. And we're going to kill Moses and Aaron, by the way. Well, let me show you what, exactly what happened. I've got this long little thing. That night, so after the spies said, Oy vey, we're not going. It's too much. They weep and raise their voices. They're really good at that. All the Israelites grumbled, Oy vey. It's not, in, <laughs> it's not in the text. If only we had, listen to this, if only we had died in Egypt. And by the way, when you complain in a spiritual context, you're always complaining straight to the throne of God. You know, don't kid yourself. You think you're complaining this way. No, you're going straight to the one whose fault it is, right? God, or so in our twisted thinking. Uh, Or in this, why is the Lord bringing us out to this land only to kill us? Joshua and Caleb, thank God for them, who were among those who had explored the land, said to the entire Israelites assembly, hey, the land we passed through, and we explored it. It's exceedingly good. If the Lord's happy with us, he'll lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He'll give it to us. Only don't rebel against the Lord. But the whole assembly talked about killing them. Oh, that did not go well. Uh, then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of the meeting to protect the guys. Uh, The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? That's disrespect. How long will they just keep spitting in my face? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs that I have done? The Lord replied, I've forgiven them as you asked, Moses. Nevertheless, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me these 10 times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. That's not very good news. And that's what they had to deal with. Forgiven, yes. The fullness of what I had for them, no. That's why I don't think the promised land is a good analogy or a type of heaven. Because in the promised land, you're still fighting. You are fighting a lot. You are needing to struggle to maintain that place. There's bloodshed there. 
There's a lot of problems in the promised land. That's not heaven. What the promised land stands for is the fullness of the spiritual inheritance that belongs to us as believers in, in the Lord God. In other words, look what he said. They're still forgiven. There's still an option to live with me forever, but you will not with this kind of behavior. You have short-circuited the life that I had for you, the promises, the milk and the honey. No, you're going to get bread and water, but it's by your own design you're going to fall short. And we know thousands of Christians do that. Here's a quote. How many believers are like these wandering Jews on their way to heaven, but because of their doubts and their fears and their, and their hard hearts, spend more time wandering than resting. To enter God's rest means to enjoy the abundant life Jesus came to give, to walk in God's love, joy, and peace, to embrace every spiritual blessing and promise, to be everything God has intended you to be. Sadly, in God's kingdom, there are restless wanderers and those, and those who, through faith and patience, on the other hand, inherit the promises. They hit the bullseye. They enjoy life. They don't wreck everything because they're going to have an affair and start, start living like a pagan halfway through. Yes, it is possible for you to still have been saved to do some very terrible things, but your body's going to fall short of that which you could have had. That happens all the time. Unfortunately, that happens all the time. So what do we have here? We've got, God's gotten a lot of, press from that Psalm 95, because 500 years after the incident, David is singing the song, warning his fellow Jews, hey guys, let's not rebel like they did 500 years ago in the desert. Then our pastor, who's using Hebrews now, a thousand years from David, is using Psalm 95 to warn the Hebrew born-again Christians, don't do that, because that will make you fall short. Oh, don't tell me, hey, as long as I get to heaven, I really don't care. Because when you get to heaven and you're minus, you're minus. There'll be minus. First Corinthians chapter 3, 1 through 10, read it. There'll be minus. There'll be a difference for those who fell in the desert because of their sin and unbelief. Oh, that's just the way it is, that's what we're talking about here, not falling short. So don't do it. It's a choice. So let's finish up, 13 to the end. But, but and so, so don't do that. Here's something better than, than hardening your heart. Verse 13, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We've come to share in Christ. Here's the line. We really know that we share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. As it has just been said today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Weren't they the ones Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry with those 40 years? Wasn't it those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And question number three, whom did God swear 
But to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Just hold that thought. Unbelief is not struggling with doubt. Unbelief is not weak faith. Unbelief opposes faith. We come to the Lord with our weak faith and our our doubts, asking him for help. Unbelief prevents you from doing that. Do you see the difference? Uh, I have a nice quote, if I can find it here. Uh, Newell, commentator from the early 1900s, he says, unbelief is not the inability to understand, but the unwillingness to trust. It is the will, not the intelligence that is involved. And so this is really gonna be the end of anything good is to let unbelief rise up in our hearts. Now, unbelief will will bar a person from eternal life, but unbelief in the sinful heart survives conversion in the saved person, and we have bouts with unbelief that will not damn us, but it can destroy us and keep us in the wilderness, wandering around in frustration like that. Why don't you go back to the first two verses, and we'll just really talk about that. So, so here, here's what saved people do who struggle and think, oh, oh, oh man, what am I going to do? They, they persevere and they make it to the end because they encourage one another daily as long as it's called today. And, and, and as long as it's called today, encouraging one another, that's really important. Why do you have to do that? Because we are easily deceived by our own sin nature. So the whole point of the New Testament really is the Holy Spirit has been given to help us with the sin nature that survives conversion. The Holy Spirit, I have a beautiful scripture for you about that. In Galatians, it says in chapter five about the the thing that we all struggle with. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature, which is in there. For the sinful nature desires what's contrary to the spirit. And the two of them are at war with one another. They are in conflict with each other inside you so that you have trouble doing what you want. So part of the way that you survive, letting the sin nature have the wheel is to do the very things that you've been told already. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Hold on to your courage and hope. Don't harden your heart and encourage one another daily because deceitfulness. So he's saying, listen, you all need each other. Here's a shout out to the church to help you because your own heart is deceitful above all things. And you need somebody sitting next to you and around you. You need to be hearing the word of God, worshiping together, confessing your sins to one another. You you need to encourage one another because it's so tricky and subtle. Nobody wakes up one day and says, I want to abandon the faith today. It's just a slow, deceitful process of hardening your heart and drifting and being careless. That's what happens. So he says, you need one another to help each other. A while ago, a guy was standing next to me and he had a wasp on his sweater. 
And it was doing its thing, edging ever closer to his neck, right there. And he's like just standing there, whatever. <laughs> and I flicked it over and said, oh, a wasp. <laughs> flicked it off and he said, thank you. Wow, I didn't see that. I almost got stung. And I said, yeah, you almost did. You can't see the wasps. You can't have church on the beach. You can have a prayer time on the beach. A lot of people say, my church is the beach or the mountains and all of that. You can have a prayer time. You can sing up there, but you can't have the church because who's going to tell you about the wasp? The seagulls? That's not going to happen. The seagull will come down maybe and eat them for you. But no, sir. Jesus said two or three. Two or three gathered together, and then I'm there in a different way that I'm not there. Otherwise, encourage one another while it is today. Oh, my word, do we need encouragement. We're a family. We're together. The disciples said, hey, teach us to pray. Jesus, what does he say? He says, when you pray, say, our Father. What? You mean, what are you throwing me in together with everybody else? Because that's God's design. No such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. The Lone Ranger, the Lone Ranger. I just was watching this in a nature show. Listen. <laughs> Barb, you were sitting right there. There was a water buffalo that was in the herd. And the lions were surrounded and frustrated because they couldn't do a thing. They saw one of the little ones, you know. They're, no way they're getting through those water buffalo. No way. One of the water buffalo, a big one, wanders out. And the music, you already know what's going to happen. <laughs> the music changes and you're like, go back to the herd. You, you're so dead, you know, and, and it was. And the announcer is like, in an unlikely move, the water buffalo strays from the protection of the herd. It's always the Lone Ranger, or they get their feelings hurt, or I don't agree with that, or nobody invited me to the party, or whatever the reason. They decide, I'm going to sit home and just read my Bible. 78% of churchgoers say that it's okay to be a good Christian and not go to church. Yeah, that's the spirit of the age. He's going to later say, do not give up the habit of meeting together, as is the habit of some, but meet together all the more as you see the day approaching to encourage one another. We need it. I love this. Do Christians understand the power of encouraging words? A heartfelt thank you, a compliment, an affirmation, a good deed towards someone heals the heart and sets the spirit free. There's power of life and death in the tongue, and so often Christians are too wrapped up in themselves to realize there's someone standing there drowning in discouragement and miss the opportunity to throw them a lifeline of encouragement. Let's take the writer's exhortation to use our words to build up and help one another in our common struggle to remain faithful to the end. Oh, we are so good at judging and criticizing everybody. How are we at encouraging? You know, people just think, you know, some of us, oh, we're the quality control agents in the kingdom of God. 
you know, complete with, with the clipboard. You know, oh, they're sitting there, whoop, check. Little note about later, check. All of that, put down the clipboard, buddy. Roll up your sleeves and do something around here to make it better. Help, serve, like the rest of us broken, humble, needy sinners who need the grace of God. But boy, what a cup of cold water to say, hey, God loves you. Hey, did anybody tell you how much God loves you this week? You're going to make it. Oh, I know you probably got a lot of stuff that's saying you're never going to make it. You're a big failure. But no, 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 no. You are going to make it. God's got his hand on you and he's blessed you all your life. You have answers to all your prayers. That true? Don't forget about that. Can you imagine if everybody came to church on a crazy mission? I'm going to encourage 10 people before I leave this place. That'd be a church. This church is kind of like that. Not going to lie. <laughs> this church is very encouraging. Now, I want you to see something. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end that confidence we had at the first. The lady in the coffee shop, I always use her for this. She goes, ah, as a Christian, half my life. And the answer to that, I said, was, you picked the wrong half. <laughs> you picked the wrong half, lady? Oh, come on. You just proved you either never knew him or you're in a bad backslide. All right? Listen, you got to start well, but you got to end well. That's the proof that you hit the actually hit the bullseye. Yeah, you can be forgiven and wander in the desert all your life and fall short, but do you really want to do that? Do you really want to do that? We've come to share in Christ if we hold on. Now, to the end, I have a funny little story. I was at Pete's Coffee, and I'm standing there right by the register and waiting for my coffee, and there's a guy standing right here to my left, and he calls my name, and he says, hey, Ross, your coffee's ready. And this guy goes, Ross, Ross, Ross Ryman, Ross, hey, it's Dave. I'm like, hey, hey, Dave, <laughs> Dave. Do you know how many Daves there are, by the way? <laughs> Raise your hand if you're a Dave. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. What are you trying to do to us? <laughs> So I don't know him. I don't know him. My mind's going, oh, please, God, please, God, help me. And the conversation's already too far. Uh, I just say, Dave, listen, I'm going to humble myself and just tell you. I, I'm. He goes, Dave from Bible College. You used this last name. I said, Dave, my friend from Bible College. 35 years ago, Dave. Yes, it's me. We were both 20. 55. Looking at each other. In the eyes, in the eyes, trying to remember that. Oh, it was a glorious, fun conversation. Oh, man, you're serving the Lord. Yeah, I've been a pastor. I've been this. He's a Air Force chaplain. He's like, uh, how many kids? How many kids you got? I go, I got three kids. And I said, how many do you got? And he goes, uh, five kids. And then he says, do you have any grandchildren? And I'm all, well, I'm working on it. 
I'm working on it. I mean, if only certain people. Voice back on. <laughs> The certain people who would have to be working on it, in my case, who are re genetically related to me, also control the sound at the church. It's <laughs> a good one. Wait till I talk to you afterwards. <laughs> yeah, so no, I said no. They're, yeah, we're getting busy. We're working on it, I guess. Whatever. <laughs> I'm stop. I'm sorry. I'm moving on. Mo moving on. <laughs> sorry, Caitlin. I can say sorry to you, but not to Zachary. Yes, I'm sorry, Zachary. <laughs> um, here's the whole point of the story. Some of you think I forgot to tell you the point. <laughs> Sometimes that happens. This time I'm going to finish the point. I said to him, talking about a couple names came up. Oh, oh. One guy's in jail serving 20 years. One guy is a militant atheist. One guy, and I, I put my hand on his shoulder and I said, we made it. Because we're looking at 35 years or 20 year olds with Bibles and you know, <laughs> right? Who knows, right? But I said, we made it. And he goes, not yet. <laughs> not yet. Now we both went to Bible college. We know that we're saved and we're there, we're as good as there. We get that, but we also know that we're on a journey that requires today, this day, if I hear his voice down to heart in my heart, this day, I have choices. I have a sin nature. I Sometimes, it's hard to believe, I have a bad attitude. <laughs> I can go one way or the other. I still have breath in my body. There's time to ruin my life still. That's what he meant. Do you want to hit the bullseye? He said, yeah, we're, we're making it. We're making it. We're almost there. We're almost there. So praise the Lord uh, for that. Oh, by the way, the verse ends with three questions. And you may think he's being rhetorical. He is. But here's what he's saying. He's saying, hey, are you, are you guys in or out, you Hebrews? Are you born again or not? Are you going back to Moses you going to die in the wilderness or not? And they're like, oh. he anticipates them, says, oh, slow down. Let me ask you three questions first. And their verses, what are they? Verses uh, 16, 17, and 18. Three quick questions. He goes, uh, number one, before you answer the question, uh, uh, by saying, yes, yes, we're saved. Praise the Lord. Uh, number one, who were those 600,000 guys who heard God and rebelled anyhow? Answer, people like us. Number two, with whom was the Lord ticked off for 40 long years whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Answer, people like us. Oh, I got a third question. To whom did God say those sad words? You are not going to enter my rest with that kind of behavior. Answer, people like us, people like you and me. How are they like you and me? How aren't they like you and me? 
They've been set free from bondage in a miraculous way. They had, they had seen the Lord do amazing things on their behalf. They were well familiar with the voice of God, more familiar than we are. People who sang songs of praise after God set them free. They were singing with the tambourines. They were in church assembly. They lived in church. People were familiar with the gospel and the word of God. So he says, watch yourselves. Watch yourselves because they were God's people and they had everything you have and they fell anyway. And you and I know people like that. Just don't have to be like that. You do not. Now let me close with this, this today thing. Five times the word today is used and it's capitalized every time. What's up with that? He's saying, encouraging one another and not hardening your heart and looking to Jesus today is the only time you can do it because you will not always have the opportunity. You must respond when God is moving, listen to me, when God is moving in your heart, you must respond then, or you are hardening your heart. Every single time, for example, on my phone, I get a, a, a notice. Do you want to upgrade now? Yes or no later? And I always hit the no later, <laughs> right, usually. That's deadly with the spirit. That's why it capitalizes today. It means now, because you don't have 15 minutes from now. You're not guaranteed that. And the opportunity may pass. And it's too late to encourage them because it's not today anymore and they already are in the adulterous uh, affair. You missed it because you missed the today. It's not today anymore. It's not today anymore when you die. And somebody wonders, did they really love me? Did they really think I was okay? You're going to go to your grave once you die, it's not today anymore. Once they wander away, it's not today anymore. Every time you hit in your heart, no, not now, later, you're harder. And trust me, the thing that he's telling you when you hit not now, later, will be harder to do later. Because nothing ever does say the biggest trick. Affirm, yes, yes, true. Yes, I need it. Yes, it's true. Yes, I should. Later. And you know, the road to hell. What is it paved with? It's paved with no, not now, later. But you die and your body's in the wilderness. Oh, right beyond, right there. Because you said later. Not gonna happen. The next time you have the thought, I need to pray. I just don't pray. Drop to your knees. Go take a walk around the corner and start talking. The next time you, you think to yourself, what am I doing? I'm the most self-centered person in the world. I'm destroying my own marriage. Right then and there, boom, out of your mouth. Honey, I'm a self-centered person. <laughs> I'm sorry. Right when the Lord says, could you open the book and read my word? 
right then. Grab the book right then. Don't let anything get in between because that's why it's capitalized five times. Now you're hearing. Now's the time. This is when it happens, not later because later is rebellion. Later is passive aggressive. No. Later. Right? Okay. Well, let me say something else before I close on that note. Uh, R.C. Sproul, Sproul, great noted theologian, prolific writer. His wife passed away, and here's what he tweeted, and it, and it became a big sensation online. He tweeted, I would have held her hand more. And he just talked about the joy of holding hands. He, he held hands a lot with his wife, but he said, I just, she just loved to hold hands and every time we did, it was like, oh, we're kids. We're making it through this life together. You're safe with me, kid. I'm leading the way. And it was so good. And people would look and say, there's another happy husband and wife. And it was so good. But there were so many times I didn't. And she's gone. And I, and I just wanted to fall asleep with her hand in mine. And he passed that along to Christian men. I would have held her hand. More, but today is over. While it's still called today, what a funny thing. He says, do it today while it's still called today because today will be over. Let's pray together. <coughs> Heavenly Father, there's a lot to think about. In Hebrews chapter three, we pray that the Holy Spirit would help us to make sense of it. And now as we remember one of the ways that we are encouraged to persevere to the end through taking communion and remembering your death on our behalf, we ask the Holy Spirit to help us. In Christ's name, amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.